Hey West Bulls, this is Thomas. This last Sunday, we had some technical difficulties with our sermon, but we believe so much in this message. We wanted other people who weren't joining us on that day to be able to hear it. So, I'm hanging out here in the gathering place. Thought we'd go over the message one more time with you guys. A little bit more informal, uh, but hopefully it will work and communicate to you what we had shared on Sunday morning. I thought about going down to the sanctuary and giving it to an empty auditorium, but that just looked weird. That just sounded weird. So, here we go. Uh, John chapter 4. Let's get into it. It says this, Now when he had to go through Samaria, Jesus came to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For men did not associate with women in public, and Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks the water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, please give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. Then he told her, Go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband either. What you have said is quite true. The woman then said, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. When we used to live out at Pepperdine, this was the view that we had from our back porch. We're still looking for a place like this out here in Colorado, so if you know anybody with a backyard, something similar, please let me know. But the ocean has always fascinated me. There's just something about it, especially since I grew up in New Mexico, the desert southwest, where we didn't see much standing water at any one time. The ocean, its size, its beauty, its grandeur, there's just something about it. And one thing, though, has always stood out to me. One thing in particular has always amazed me about the ocean. If you are stuck out there in that watery abyss amidst all of that H2O, you would most likely die of thirst. I mean, the irony is so thick, surrounded by limitless amounts of water, and yet you die of thirst. And that's because there's only a certain type of water that can bring you life. There's only one type of water that can replenish you. There's only one type of water that can satisfy your craving and your thirst. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the woman here in our story in John 4. And I think he's trying to communicate it to each and every one of us as well. Maybe more than anyone else in all of history, Jesus has this ability to take things, very common things, everyday kind of things, and he uses them, he refers to them to open our eyes to other things. He uses what we know and experience on a daily basis, and then he expands our horizons and our understandings in and through those things. And in this story, he uses, of all things, a cup of water. 
He just uses a glass of cold water. Think about this story for a second with me. In this odd little interaction that Jesus has with the woman in John 4, I think what he's trying to say is this. You know that thirst that you have in your stomach? You actually have that same thirst in your soul. You know that, that desire you have for your physical thirst to be quenched? You have that same desire, that same need for a spiritual thirst to be quenched. I think he's trying to get this woman to see that what's been happening in her life, the good things, the bad things, and the really ugly things, all of them are symptoms of a thirst. But not so much of her stomach, more of her soul. They're actually all symptoms of spiritual dehydration, if you will a thirst in her soul. She's surrounded by lots of water. She's in fact sitting with Jesus by a well full of water. And yet, it seems like she's dying of thirst. She might be swimming in the ocean, and yet she's dying of thirst. It's because she needs a different type of water to stay alive. And this is quite possibly one of the most important things that we need to come to terms with about ourselves. We are spiritual, immaterial beings that will never fully be satisfied by material things. Let me say that one more time. We are immaterial beings at our very core, and thus we will never, ever truly be satisfied by material things. You're far more than just a physical body. You and I are far more than just a random assortment of cells or a bunch of accidental pond scum mutations. You are far more than just a watch that God wound up and put on the table and left. You are more than just some highly developed animal or some project you are created in the image of God, and thus you are a spiritual being. Thus you are an eternal being. Thus you are a soul-infused being. And if you don't take care of that soul, if you don't spend some time finding satisfaction for your spiritual self, your inner self, then you are going to die of thirst. And ultimately, that thirst is going to manifest itself in so many different ways in your life, and a lot of things are going to fall apart. Like the woman in our story, we assume that if we hydrate ourselves from the outside in, if we hydrate ourselves physically, that somehow our souls will find the satisfaction they're looking for. That somehow outside in will make everything else fall into place. We assume that if we hydrate ourselves by having more sex outside in, our souls will be satisfied. We assume that if we hydrate ourselves by buying more stuff outside in, that somehow our souls will find satisfaction. We assume that if we experience more success outside in, we'll somehow be satisfied for our souls. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. All the outside sources, all of the wells that exist on the outside, they're finite. They're fickle. They're, they're fleeting. Those wells run out. Those wells run dry. Maybe they're empty already. Maybe they're just full of salt water. But you cannot nourish your soul from the outside in. To find satisfaction to that thirst within, it's got to come from the inside out. But every day, oh, our culture, crafty consumer culture, it tells us otherwise, doesn't it? Are you thirsty? Well, just go buy a bigger house. Are you thirsty? Well, just go sleep around. Thirsty? Go buy the newest shiny eye product. Thirsty? Go make a name for yourself. Thirsty? Go look at this website or buy this magazine. Are you thirsty? Just go buy a bunch of this or try a bunch of this or taste a bunch of this and that soul craving, that soul thirst will be satisfied. But Jesus tells us that's not how it works. None of those wells will ever truly quench the thirst in your soul. 
Just ask the woman in this story. It seems as if based upon the number of men that she's been with, she's assumed that sex will satisfy her soul. And so she's given herself away to every man who's ever shown interest. But that didn't work. All those disappointing one-night stands just left her feeling used and abused. You see, you could be having lots of sex and actually never experience intimacy. You can be with a lot of people yet feel completely alone. Like I said before, you can be swimming in the ocean and yet die of thirst. Or we could just ask the guy or the gal who thought that the next promotion or the top of the business ladder would somehow satisfy the thirst of their soul, again, outside in. But it doesn't. It just left him sacrificing his morals and possibly his family and his marriage. So you can experience a ton of success and yet feel completely unimportant and unsuccessful. You can be at the top of the food chain, so to speak, and yet feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel. You can be swimming in the ocean and yet die of thirst. Or ask the addict who thought that just one more pill or one more drink or one more bed or one more hit would satisfy the thirst of his or her soul, an outside-in approach. Ask them how that worked out for them, and you'll see it didn't work out at all. Or you can ask the person who buys everything they, they can, get their hands on, who goes into incredible debt doing so because they think that stuff will fill their soul. But again, your house can be full of stuff and you can feel completely empty. You can have the best that life has to offer and yet you can hate your life. You can be swimming in the ocean and yet you can die of thirst. And some of you need to come to terms with all of this. Like the woman in John 4, you kind of need Jesus to call you out. You see, after a few minutes with this woman, Jesus goes and asks one of the most awkward and it seems like out-of-place questions in all of Scripture. We're talking about water, and I get that. Water's great. Then he moves into living water. It gets a little weird at that point. And then he asks her, out of the blue, to go and get her husband. See, now I'm a communication guy, and I just think that this question reeks of, of uh, impersonal uh, communication imperfection and errors. Jesus is a master, it looks like, at derailing a conversation and having it go south quickly. Go and get your husband. Where did that question come from? Why would he ask that in the middle of this conversation about water? Well, I think he's more or less asking her about her sex life. That's interesting. It seems as if Jesus, he doesn't want to talk about pleasantries anymore. He's not interested in the weather or beating around the bush. He gets at the heart of the matter by speaking directly to the heart of the woman. And that really at the heart of her life has been this obsession with men and with sex and this desire for intimacy. And so he asks her to go and get her husband, not because he wants to shame her or to make her feel bad or to ridicule her, but because he wants her to come to terms with how thirsty she is. He needs her to come to terms with the fact that she is incredibly dehydrated. It's as if Jesus in this moment is pulling the sleeves back on someone who cuts to expose all the scars. It's as if he's pulling out all the porn magazines or showing you your, your internet usage to prove to you that you have a porn addiction. It's as if he's throwing on the table all these empty medicine bottles and pill bottles to show you that you're addicted to pain meds. You're thirsty, Jesus says to us. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, you're thirsty, Jesus says. I'm not. I'm really not. You're thirsty, Jesus keeps saying to us. I'm not, Jesus. Back off. I'm not thirsty. Stop saying that. Then why do you do this? Then why do you have these? Then why do you always think this? Then why do you always go to this? 
You're so thirsty, Jesus says. And he's just trying to get us to come to terms with that reality. We're all dying of thirst in one way or another. And like the woman, like the addict, like any number of people, like everyone in this world practically, we assume that if we just fill ourselves from the outside in, that we will find satisfaction for our souls. But we just can't. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he said what he did in John 4 and really throughout his entire ministry. Are you thirsty, he says? Then drink from me. Do you feel completely dehydrated physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually? Then believe in me. Do you want to truly find satisfaction for your soul and not just for your stomach? Then come to me. And not only will you get a great drink of clean, pure water, I will actually place in you a river of living water. You will find satisfaction. You will find the best drink you've ever had. And then I'll put the source of that water inside of you. Living water. Water that will never run dry. Water that will quench your soul and your stomach. And some of you are hearing this for the very first time. And so I want to be as clear with you as I possibly can. That, that soul craving you have, that thirst deep in your pit, deep in your being, that can only be satisfied through Christ. He is the only one who's big enough and strong enough, who is capable enough of satisfying that desire deep within you. Nothing you buy, nothing you digest, nothing you hit or purchase or, or try or sleep with, nothing in, in that regard will ever satisfy your soul. Only Jesus will do that. And my fear for you is that you will wait until it's too late to take a sip of Christ. My fear for you is that you will try everything else, that you will go swimming in the ocean, and that you will eventually die of thirst. Unless you're filled with the living water of Christ, then you're going to die of thirst. But I have another fear, and it's not for the non-Christian person who hasn't tried or tasted of Christ's living water. My fear is for Christian people who know John 4 to be true intellectually. They know that Jesus offers living water, and it sounds great, and they get all excited about that truth. But yet, they are pretty dry and dehydrated themselves. My fear is that Christians actually don't experience the fullness of this truth in John 4. My fear is the concept of living water is more of a nice thought or something that you crochet and hang in the bathroom than it is actually a truth that changes your life forever. See, living water makes for a nice wall hanging or a ministry title, but it doesn't actually reflect what's happening in a lot of Christians' lives, if we're honest. It reminds me of the Rose Parade that I saw one time. My apologies to the, the pooper scoopers that I offended last week, if you were one of them, again. My deepest, sincerest apologies. But a few years ago, I'm at the Rose Parade. And wouldn't you know it, one of the floats right in the middle of that parade just runs out of gas. And of course, if you know anything about the Rose Parade, it's on a very strict schedule. And so if one parade is out of the loop or running behind, it throws everything else off. And so everyone is taking notice. Everybody's up in arms. Come to find out the parade that's run out of gas it's actually the float for the Standard Oil Company. That's crazy to me, isn't it? How does the gas company run out of gas? Again, the irony is thick. But I think that a lot of Christians might need to wrestle with that question for their own lives. How do Christians run out of passion? How do Christians run out of energy? How do Christians run out of life? How do Christians run out of living water? It's like the gas company running out of gas. That shouldn't be the case. 
Jesus is saying here in John 4, Christians should never run out of passion or life or energy or hope or love. You have a source of living water inside of you. And yet a lot of Christians know that they should be satisfied in Christ. They know that Christ should help make them feel abundant and alive and full, but they feel dry and empty and parched and drained. They know that Christ promised living water and abundant life, but their experience has been anything but that. And maybe that's because living water is far more than just a principle. Living water, as we're going to come to find out, is a person. You see, living water, the power of living water, comes not when we fall in line with the idea presented for us in John 4. Living water, abundant life, comes when we fall in love with the source of this living water. Look at what Jesus says in John 7. Beginning in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That should sound familiar to us, right? This is the same thing, exact same thing he just said to the woman several chapters before while sitting at the well. But then we come across this little commentary. And by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when Jesus talks about living water, when He promises this spring of life that will be deep inside of you, when He promises satisfaction to your soul's cravings and thirst, He's not talking about water at all. He just used water to get your attention. What he's really meaning and referring to now is the Holy Spirit. He's talking about giving you, infusing you, placing within you his spirit, his passion, his energy, his life. In fact, he's promising you the power that raised him from the dead. Jesus' comments about living water are not an invitation into an easier life. They're an invitation into an extraordinary life, an extraordinary life life, an invitation into an eternal life, an invitation into a life that's infused with the Holy Spirit. But here's where our problems begin. Here's why I think a lot of Christians look and feel and act totally dry and dehydrated. Here's why a lot of Christians don't stand out or stand up or stand against the ways of this world. They look just as dry and parched as everybody else. Why? We don't know much about the Spirit. We don't rely a whole lot on the Holy Spirit. And a few years ago, a friend asked me a series of questions that proved that this was definitely the case in my life. He started off with this question, how much do you know about God? And if I were to take God out of your faith equation, would anything change at all? Well, I feel like I've got a decent handle on God. I've been a Christian for a while now and a minister. I've got a degree in Bible. I feel like I got the God thing down as much as I can thus far in my life. But if you took him out, yeah, I think change would dra- things would drastically change. I think that if you took God out of my equation, God is creator of the universe. God is sustainer. God is the one in whose image I've been made. If you took him out of my life, then things would drastically change. If there were no God, things would be very different for me. Okay, he said, well, how much do you know about Jesus? And if I took Jesus out of your life or Jesus out of your faith equation, how much would things change? Again, I like to think that I've know a little bit about Jesus, that I've got a pretty good handle on on who Christ is. 
And yes, if you took Jesus away, if you took my Savior away, my Redeemer, my Lord, if you took him out of my life, I think things would drastically change. Okay, the friend continued on, how much do you know about the Holy Spirit? And if I took the Holy Spirit out of your faith and out of your life, how much would things change? Would anything change at all? The Holy what? The Holy who? I'm not sure I know much about this Holy Spirit that you're talking about. I mean, yeah, maybe I mentioned him in a prayer or two, or we talk about him being part of the Trinity, but in all honesty, day to day, I don't give much thought or time or attention at all to the Holy Spirit. I don't think much about him. I don't really spend much time in the Word, reflecting and learning more about him. I don't pray to him. I don't thank him. There's not much with the Holy Spirit at all in my life. And I don't think that I'm alone. Several years ago, Francis Chan wrote a book entitled Forgotten God, subtitle, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. See, most of us neglect the Holy Spirit. And if I were to take him away from you, you probably wouldn't feel much different. You probably wouldn't experience things very differently. If you took the Holy Spirit out of my equation, I'd probably keep striving on my own power and with my own will to be a good person and a good husband, to emulate Jesus, to run myself ragged, trying to live up to this standard of sacrifice and purity and humility. And at the end of the process, I would be dry and dehydrated and I'd probably be dying of thirst. And so therein lies the problem. Jesus told us that we would be alive spiritually. We would find sustenance for our souls that living water would bubble out of us when we're completely filled with the Holy Spirit. Not when we attend church, not when we memorize John 4 or John 7, which is our memory verse for the month. Not when we go through the motions, not when we do good things, not when we nod our heads in agreement. We have life, living water, abundant life, nourishment for our souls when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're not full of Him, then chances are we're dying of thirst. You know, we might be in a Christian ocean over here, right? There might be a lot of Christian boats floating around or Christian things floating in the ocean with us. But the fact of the matter is we're going to still be dying of thirst. You can be in the ocean and yet die of thirst. Call the ocean by Christian terms or put Christian things in it, but you'll still die of thirst. And so I want us at West Bowles at some point to do an entire sermon series on the Holy Spirit. I think we need to spend a lot of time unpacking and going through the scripture together, figuring out who he is, what he does, and how we can have more of him. But I want us right now in the middle of our sacred series to just spend the next few minutes together unpacking some core truths about the Holy Spirit. Um, I want us as individuals and really as a, as a church to figure out what is restricting the flow of the Holy Spirit from our lives. What is stopping the source of living water from bubbling in and then out of us? So let's go through these things together and see if we can't find and, and discover some of those barriers. Here's what we know for sure about the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7, we read this. Very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So the first thing we learn about the Holy Spirit is that although Jesus will be leaving the earth, although Jesus is going to go away, go back to the Father, he is going to send in his place someone, the Advocate, someone, the Holy Spirit. He's going to go back to heaven, but He's not going to abandon us or leave us alone. In His place, He's going to send the Spirit. Second thing we know about the Spirit, John 17, verse 16. I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another Advocate. 
to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. So not only will Jesus send us the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit will not be bound by space or by time. The Spirit won't only be with us or around us as Jesus was. The Spirit will actually be in us. And Jesus was on the earth for a a set number of days, for a finite period of time. He says the Spirit will be in you forever, without end. See, when the Spirit comes, you never go thirsty again because He's inside of you forever. He will take up residence inside of you. The Helper, the Advocate, will actually be in here. So Jesus will leave. He will send us the Holy Spirit in His place. And He will send the Holy Spirit and place Him inside of us. Third thing we learn about the Holy Spirit from Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So God has placed this Spirit in you. He sent this advocate in His place. Not to just make you feel good. Not, not, to, not to give you something spiritual to talk about. He has given you this Holy Spirit, this advocate, this helper forever inside to infuse you with power. There's something about the Holy Spirit that can enable and empower you to do things that other people simply cannot do. And again, when you get the Spirit, you never go thirsty again because you not only drink from a river, you actually get a river inside of you. You get the river maker, the power of the river literally right inside of you. The fourth and final thing we can say about the Holy Spirit is that everyone who becomes a Christian will in fact receive Him. Look at Ephesians 1, 13. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. You receive this Spirit, this gift, when you become a Christian. When you place your faith in Jesus as the unique Son of God, as the one who died so you never would, as the one who went to hell so you could spend eternity in heaven. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you say yes to those truths. When you promise yourself to Jesus and believe in His promises for you. And that's why new Christians are so excited, right? You know this experience, or you've seen this happen before. Someone comes to Christ and all of a sudden they're just over the top. They're like a little Jesus freak. I mean, they're, they're singing his praises, right? Praise music is coming out of the car at all times. They're throwing away their old CDs and, and deleting all their old junk and throwing out all their old clothes. It didn't make them look... They go crazy. It just doesn't make sense to us. Most of us just think, oh, you're kind of on a little spiritual high. It's new to you. Uh, this will rub off. This will die down over time. It's not because it's new to them. It's not because they're, they're just excited because, because they've got something different now. They're a little Jesus freak because they're now, for the first time ever, infused with the Holy Spirit. They have received the gift of living water. They are drinking from a source that's actually satisfying their souls. No wonder they're so excited. They've tasted dead salt water their whole life, and all of a sudden they're drinking living water. And so we shouldn't tell them, ah, it's going to die down, or it's going to fade away over time. You'll get off your little Jesus freak horse. No, no. We need, to, we need to live more like them. We need to seek to continue to have that water be in us and flow freely through us. 
Because over the course of time, if we're honest with ourselves, right, that river, that powerful presence, it, it dwindles, it fades. The river, the Holy Spirit river, turns into a trickle for some of us. And that's because, in all honesty, we haven't been taught just one simple truth. It really boils down to this one truth. That little Jesus freak kind of fades away over time and becomes dry and dehydrated like everybody else because they haven't learned this one thing. There's a huge difference between being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, right, versus being infused with the Holy Spirit. The difference is between indwelling and infusing. And I want you to get this. Based on the scripture that we just looked at, the Holy Spirit is gifted to everyone who becomes a Christian. Everyone who believes in Jesus and says that He is Lord receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. But just like any gift, Paul calls it an inheritance, a deposit, you can waste it. You can throw it out and, and, and use it and squander it and misspend it. Same is true with the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6. Fan into flame the gift that God has given to you. Take a guess as to what the gift is that Paul's referring to here. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, you have been given this gift. Now, Christian, do what you can to fan into flame that gift. As a Christian, you're not supposed to stop or settle with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are supposed to seek an infusion of the Holy Spirit. You don't simply want a flicker of the Spirit, a little flame which was gifted to you by God. You want an all-consuming fire. And yet most of us probably haven't, A, thanked God for the original gift. God, thanks for your Holy Spirit. Thanks for that flame that's now in me. Thanks for that gift. Thanks for, thanks for that source of living water being in me now. We haven't thanked him for the original gift, and most of us really probably haven't spent much time asking him or doing what we can to take that gift and make it even larger, to take that gift and make it an all-consuming part of our life, to take that little trickle of water and to make it a river of water. We haven't thanked him for the gift, and we haven't fanned it into flame, as Paul said. And that's a major problem, guys, because if we're just to look at the Scriptures quickly, you're going to see it's the Spirit that, that is behind all of the things that we want and desire. Look at this. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't do that. The Spirit does that. The Spirit guides us into all truth. The Spirit regenerates us. The Spirit reveals Christ to us and through us. The Spirit sanctifies us and makes us holy. He empowers us. He teaches us to pray. The Spirit produces in us fruit and evidence that God is at work. The Spirit anoints us for ministry. He gifts us for ministry. He washes and renews us. He brings unity to the body. We need the Holy Spirit, do we not? We need all of those things. We want all of those things, and thus we need the Holy Spirit. He's the power. He's the life. He is the source of all of those things. He's that fountain of living water that Christ promised to us. He's the one that enables us, that empowers us to stand up, to stand out, to stand against the ways of this world. When everyone else is dying of thirst, when everyone else is trying to consume and find satisfaction from the outside in, it's the Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit that looks so full, that looks so alive, that is able to bring, bring life and, and share living water with everybody else who's dying of thirst. So let me end our time together real fast by, by talking about some of the ways that we can be infused with the Holy Spirit, some ways that we can increase His presence and increase His power in our life. One author that I was reading called it our fillability. 
It's our desire, our openness, our ability to receive more of the Spirit. And not just have Him be in you, but have Him become the essence of who you are. Have Him completely fill you. So, let's talk about your fillability. Based on some of the texts that we looked at, there are four places I think that we should start. The first is with belief. The first thing you have to do to increase your fillability is to believe. So many of the passages that we mentioned talk about uh, if you believe then. And Jesus said this throughout his entire ministry. If you believe, then this is what will happen. If you believe, then this is what is possible. If you believe, then this is what I promise to you. And some of you are still on the fence with Jesus. You, you haven't really said yes to him as God. You haven't ever said yes to him as your savior. You haven't really said, yes, I believe. Because until you do that, you're not going to have the living water inside of you. You are going to continue to thirst and die of thirst ultimately until you believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus is who He said He is and can and will continue to do what He promised to do. If you go back to the story in John 4, the woman says towards the end of it, I know that when the Messiah comes, He will explain everything to us. More or less, she's saying, I know that in the future, when this particular event happens, then my life will be better. Right now it's in shambles. Right now it's a mess. I'm too far gone. Right now I just have to wait. But then things will get better. I think a lot of us do that same thing, don't we? When, fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. When the creditors stop calling, when, when I can fix my marriage, when the kids are out of the house, when I get a new house, when I get a better job, when this, when that, then I'll be happy. And Jesus says to you and to this woman, he says to all of us, not when, but now. I'm here right now. What you need, that life you are hoping for, that, that, that thirst you have can be quenched right now. Not later, not when, but right now. But belief isn't just saying yes to Jesus as Lord. Belief isn't just saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. Belief is actually changing behavior, right? If you truly believe something to be true, you will act differently as a result. One of my favorite scenes in all the Indiana Jones movies is the one where he has to walk across that invisible bridge to go find the cup. Right? He, he believes that there is something there, but he can't just say, yeah, I believe it to be true, and then walk away. He has to behave differently now as a result. So he says, I believe it to be true. Remember that scene, he takes that step, he can't see it, and then poof, all of a sudden his foot lands on it. That's what Christians are asked to do. Step out in faith. Step out into a world you don't know a whole lot about that you can't really see, but believe that what I've said about that world and about you is true. So see, our behavior has to be different. Belief should result in radical behavior. Let me see if I can't say it in another way. I don't know a lot about finances. My wife handles all of our personal finances, but I know this to be true. It's hard to go and buy something. It's hard to write a check for something if you don't think you have the funds to pull it off. Right? If you don't know how much money you have in the account, it's hard to go out and, and go on a limb and try to get something or to purchase something of great value when you're a little bit afraid that, that you're lacking in the account. But the more you believe, the more you become aware of, the more you have in that account, the more likely you are to write a much larger check for something. And I think that same truth holds true with the Spirit of God. See, the more you become aware of your resource, the more you believe in who He promised to be, 
the more you actually believe that He is in you, the power of the risen Christ is in you, the chances are much greater that you're going to actually do something about it. You will write a much larger check spiritually if you honestly believe the account is full. But so many of us don't believe that to be true. And here's the thing. I, I don't want just nice people. or I don't think Christ just wants more helpful people. I don't think... I don't think the world needs more fun people. What they need are actually crazy people. The world needs a bunch of crazy people. They need people who are drunk on the Spirit. People who act differently, who don't allow the normal routines of the world to dictate what they do. The world needs more of those people, transformed people, alive people. The only way that comes is through the Holy Spirit. So we need to start with our belief. We have to believe that Jesus is incredible and can continue to do incredible things. I think when we honestly believe it to be true, that gift of the Holy Spirit will begin to be flan- uh, uh, increase. It will increase tenfold in our lives. From there, we move into obedience. See, once we believe, we have to obey. Look back at how Jesus prefaces the promise for the Holy Spirit in John 14. If you love me, he says, then keep my commands. And then I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit. See, some of us are not being infused with the Holy Spirit. We don't have this river of life, this uh, eternal living water flowing in and out of us because we're doing things we know we shouldn't be doing. We're living in a way that stands in stark contrast to the ways of God. We are spending our money, spending our time, spending our resources and our values. We're spending all these things on things that we know go directly against what God wants for us. God wants purity. God wants humility. God wants sacrifice. God wants minimalism. God wants selflessness. And yet most of us, if we're honest, live in stark contrast to those traits, those characteristics. And thus I imagine the flow of the Spirit, the flow of the living water, is stopped in your life. It's all clogged up because you're not obeying God. You're not living according to His standards and His ways. Your disobedience is actually slowly killing you. It's causing you to really thirst. And ultimately you might die of thirst. So if you can obey, I think Jesus promises that stream of living water will start to flow more freely through you. Oh, what a promise. From there we move into praise. Look at Ephesians 5, 18. Something I've referenced before. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, all kinds of crazy things. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Look at that. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And in the same sentence, he says, and sing, and worship, and praise. There seems to be this powerful connection between being infused with the Holy Spirit and your praise life, your worship life. Chances are this is a generational thing, but I actually think it's bigger than that. I mean, I've spent the last 12 years around college age, and they love to praise. There's a praise movement happening right now. But I think what they're on to is this truth in Ephesians 5. That when you give yourself away to God in worship, He starts to give Himself away to you through the Spirit. What an amazing thing that is. Now, don't hear me say that you have to raise your hands and worship all the time. You need to start shouting amen after every point that the pastor's making. That you need to dance in the aisles. I wouldn't be mad at you if you started to do those things. I, I might join you, in fact. But don't, you don't have to do those things. That's not the litmus test of losing yourself in worship. But I do think that when it comes to worship, a lot of us are playing it pretty safe. A lot of us are pretty reserved, in all honesty. You know, hands by our sides, 
voice pretty low, emotional engagement even lower. And that's a problem. You're not giving yourself away to God in worship, and I think maybe he's not giving himself away to you as a result. So lose yourself. Give yourself away. Go as far as David, who when he wanted to really worship God, it said stripped down naked and just started dancing in his underwear before the Lord. We might not want to do that at West Bowles, but anything short of that would be just fine. I want us as a church to develop a culture where praise is a big part of it. A, God deserves it and is worthy of it. But second, it seems like it opens us, to, us up to more of His Spirit. That's powerful truth. And fourth and finally, we need to pray. Luke 11, many of us know this passage. It starts this way in verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Read that before? Most of us think that means opportunities or relationships, some sort of spiritual blessing. But look at how Jesus couches it. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks the door will be opened. Because what, which one of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, wait for this now, will your Father in heaven give to you this amazing gift called the Holy Spirit? If you ask Him, it says. See, being filled with the Spirit seems to just be a matter of asking God to gift Him to us, to give Him more of us. And again, we've probably neglected to thank Him for the original gift, and many of us haven't spent much time asking Him for more of it. And so I don't think it's rocket science. I think we just have to simply ask God, would you send more of your Holy Spirit into our lives? Would you send more of your Holy Spirit onto us and into us? Would you gift Him to us? And like any good dad, this passage says, God wants to get little trinkets and goodies for his children. Whenever I go to the airport or on a trip, I always want to bring back little things to the kids. And, and I open the, the suitcase up and say, hey, I got you guys some things. I'm thinking about you. I want you to have good things. And God has that same desire for us. He wants us to have good things. He's thinking about us. He wants us to, to be infused with his spirit. That's the greatest gift he could think of giving to us. And so I think we just need to ask him for it. So whether you're sitting by a well or swimming in the ocean or maybe you're just going through the motions in life, if you feel like you're dying of thirst, it's time to take a drink. It's time to take a drink, and not from the outside in, but from the inside out. It's time to take a drink of the living water of Jesus Christ. And I think that you will find satisfaction in ways you never thought possible.